World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Throughout this series, we will be discussing some of the major global challenges we face. Deforestation to global pandemics. In our first season of World We Got This, we will be speaking with experts about the factors at play during a global pandemic, the differing global perspectives, and ultimately, the way in which we can meet this challenge. This podcast was being planned long before the outbreak of COVID-19, but all that changed just a couple of weeks ago. Now, of course, I'm recording this from home, and everyone we speak to in the coming episodes is also going to be working from home. But the key thing is that they're still working. They're still researching, they're still teaching, and they're still trying to understand how we can wrestle with this global pandemic. Because that is what the podcast is all about. So here we go. Hello and welcome to World We Got This. In this first episode, I'm joined by Dr. Anne Kelly, Reader in Global Health at the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine here at King's College London as well as Professor Mauricio Pabon, Director at the Institute of Gerontology, Professor of Public Policy of Global Health at King's College London, and Adjunct Associate Professor at Harvard University. Anne and Mauricio spoke to me about the organisation that is playing a central role in this global pandemic, the World Health Organisation, or WHO. As you'll hear from our conversation, it quickly became clear that by discussing the WHO, we are able to survey the landscape of global health and pandemic response. From the social determinants of health to the economic impact of quarantine, the WHO has been at the centre of this most recent crisis. Its actions and systems of operating tell us a lot about the ways in which global health is structured, but also perhaps point to a future which is forever changed due to this most pressing of global challenges. Welcome, Anne and Mauricio. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be able to talk. Thank you, James, for having us. Really happy to be here. Anne, we wanted to start this series by talking about the systems and institutions that come into play during a global pandemic, in particular the World Health Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about how and why the WHO came into existence? Sure. So the World Health Organization was one of many institutions organized in the wake of World War II as part of a kind of Bretton Woods system in order to encourage collaboration between governments to to head off the similar kinds of um, crisis that kind of precipitated um, during World War II. So the WHO, I mean, has an interesting kind of history because there had been previously a lot of, um, there had been international efforts around coordinating disease response um, back to the sanitary regulations, which were largely um, directed towards managing disease outbreaks that would come between countries, problems of cholera, smallpox, and really demanded some international effort in order to keep both countries safe, but also not to, you know, completely wreck the economy in terms of trade. So there is a there is a history of international global health diplomacy in that area. I think what's interesting about the WHO um, is that it also encompasses, in addition to this mission around, you know, infectious disease control, a broader set of norms and commitments to health as being a 
something that could link with development, that it's more than medical matters. So it comes at a moment where humanitarian crisis um, following the war really captivating people's attention in terms of what, you know, health system strengthening might look like. So I think what's, you know, interesting to think through with the WHO is this negotiation between a very broad-based agenda about what health could be, but also a very particular set of event interventions around diseases, infection control, how countries manage relationships under situations of contagion and crisis. So the WHO is shaped by its members whose focus can be also be shaped by the internal politics and cultural priorities of the nation. The WHO, I guess, is not immune from the challenges faced by other intergovernmental organisations. Mauricio, can you give us a perspective on the changing nature and focus of the WHO? Yes, thank you, James. Yes, I wanted to emphasize this tendency of the WHO, which had a very dominant role historically in addressing uh, disease control and other issues of health, to the emergence of very many new actors, especially uh, non-state actors in global health, as Anne was saying, which has in some ways transformed the, the, the legitimacy, but also the power and the ability of the WHO sometimes to act as the only single sort of international agency. Um, when one of the things that has happened, for example, is since the 1980s, the uh, emerging importance of the World Bank in thinking about how we should design health systems, very much focused initially on issues of health system financing, basically meaning that the World Bank, which has traditionally had a very kind of a neoliberal approach to health systems, pushed forward a very dominant way of thinking that it's on, in some ways complemented the view of the WHO, but it also clashed with their views. Like Anne was saying, we have also, you know, the emergence of global funds to address particular diseases, but also to both strengthen health systems vertically and horizontally, so across different diseases or for specific diseases. And so in some ways, I feel like the WHO has struggled to find its role in this process. Now, one another point that I wanted to emphasize of the WHO is that since around 2008, more or less, the WHO has also trying to understand how global health also relate to wider political and social determinants of health. There was something called the Declaration of Rio in 2011, but also the WHO report on the social determinants of health, which really emphasizes the idea that health is actually really more than just health systems and really involves the interaction with areas of policy that are outside of health. And I think this is something that we will increasingly see as very important, for example, in the COVID-19 epidemic today, how health has implications for the economy, how um, the economy itself will in turn have implications of, for health and so on. So I think the WHO is also redefining its role in trying to find a way to influence not only health system, but really broader policies outside of the health system. And thinking about how the WHO operates in a crisis, your research has focused on the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Can you tell us about some recent examples of how the WHO has actually tackled a global pandemic? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important just to provide a bit of context to what roles and responsibility the WHO has in kind of declaring a public health emergency in the context of infection control. I mean, this really dates back to the early aughts. I mean, first you have, you know, September 11th, which really redefined how people were thinking about the relationship between security and health. If you remember, there's kind of the anthrax scare and this possibility um, of biowarfare. So very early on, there's a new agenda about the kinds of concerns 
that might impact how international health or kind of the threats that should fall under the remit of the WHO beyond the classic set of diseases like cholera or yellow fever, kind of infectious disease that spread across borders. There's a new set of emerging concerns. So, so in the policy documents, you see this shift towards thinking about emerging infections into disease or kind of biological threats that might be something that would require some global health um, coordination and preventative measures. Then with SARS outbreak, which I think now with COVID, people are remembering back to this moment. Again, there's this struggle around what happens when a disease outbreak sits in a country and what responsibilities does that country have to sharing data with the the broader global health community. And because China was slow or perceived to be slow in giving that data, new sets of regulations came into place that would mandate the sharing of data in the context of an outbreak. Um, A lot of these don't have a lot of regulatory teeth, but it put the WHO in a position of being able to name and shame governments if they weren't sharing data. And also to suggest, interestingly, that in a context of an outbreak, that countries need to keep their borders open for essential trade, for the need of health, you know, health emergency workers, humanitarian aid to impact the country. So when we look at the Ebola outbreak, it's kind of an interesting moment where the WHO has this power to declare an international emergency. The WHO came under quite a bit of criticism for being slow to respond, for being slow to sound that alarm as the Ebola outbreak kind of fizzled away um, in West Africa. And there's a number of reasons, I think, to think about why that was the case. One way of thinking about the WHO's quote unquote failure to alert the global health community and call this um, an international uh, public health emergency of international concern has to do with the, the structure of the WHO, where it has its kind of technical expertise or at that moment had its kind of technical expertise at the top in Geneva and country offices based who are really responsible for feeding that information up. Now, there's a tension between needing to sound an alarm about a public health emergency and what kind of economic impacts that might have on a country where, especially those in low middle income country settings, which where it would really be devastating to say that, you know, an Ebola outbreak is happening. So there's a bit of, I think, structural bureaucratic issues that make it quite difficult to respond quickly. The other set of issues, and I think Margaret Chan, who is then the director general, spoke to this, was, again, the sense that the WHO's budgets have shrunk and that when they get funding, it's for very specific earmarked issues, polio eradication, et cetera. So they didn't have enough flex to move in quickly. And the third piece relates back to something that Mauricio was discussing, is that with the long tradition of collaborating with non-governmental actors and humanitarian aid organizations, Médecins Sans Frontières, um, MSF, they had been the kind of the frontline actor in responding to Ebola crises because they have a lot of technical expertise, they have biosafety equipment, they move quickly. So there was a sense that if MSF was operating there, that that outbreak would be controlled. Unfortunately, it was spreading through the community and in you know nation's <laughs> capitals, which really hadn't been the history of the disease. So it quite quickly got out of control. And it really did take some foreign bodies, foreign people in the response to get Ebola and to take it into the U.S., into the UK to actually gain some global health attention. Um, And the WHO was able to kind of at least motivate a bit more of the global health response. And you mentioned SARS there. 
it's clear that SARS, like this crisis, began in China. How does the WHO work to make sure it gets accurate and timely information from all nations during a global pandemic? I mean, there has been quite a dramatic shift. I mean, if we think back to 2002, the first cases were in November 2002, and it took until February 2003 before the Chinese government notifies the WHO. And this was after a rise to almost, I think, over 300 cases and a kind of classic story of contagion where an infected businessman stays in a hotel in Hong Kong, and this becomes a worldwide health threat quite rapidly. And it becomes a kind of case study in the challenges of asking governments to even those that are quite close to share that information and to flag up to the WHO early on in an outbreak. Now, you look at COVID and, you know, despite a lot of, you know, there's media attention and critiques about, you know, China kicking out journalists. Very early, the situation was alerted in Wuhan, but also I think Almost within the week in which the virus was, its genomic was sequenced, the lab scientists that did this put this open access online, which is why, despite all of the challenges about building diagnostic texts, quite quickly, the WHO was able to come up with a test kit because that information was available. So yes, this is very delicate and diplomatic set of issues around kind of sharing information, not only about impacts of outbreak in tourism economy, but also in terms of who's going to have the proprietorial access over key information for developing vaccines, etc. But this is where the WHO as a coordinator comes into place because it encourages that kind of cooperation and collaboration for the health of global health more broadly. And Maurizio, your research does, of course, focus on the elderly. If the virus is going to be particularly prevalent in the elderly and, of course, developed nations have a ageing population, will we continue to see the epicentres in developed nations such as the US, the UK and even China? And in turn, what might this mean for the response of the WHO? Yeah, that's a really challenging question. The fact that this particular epidemic is particularly influencing or disproportionately having an impact on older populations is something that that's very unique. You know, it's not unlike some other epidemics that often affect children and older people, but it is unusual in the sense that it's so much disproportionately in terms of death affecting older people. So I think this is something that hasn't yet been processed yet and not something that it reflects, you know, many of the issues that have come around reflects how we as society think about other people. And you see all sort of different responses in different countries. Now, one issue to think about, for example, is to what extent this will play out if and when the epidemic hits low and middle income countries, which have actually much younger populations. So, for example, if you think about the mean age of the Italian population is somewhere around 40 years. The population of Mali has a mean age of around 16 years, so much younger population. On the other hand, um, in these countries, intergenerational relationships are very important. All the people often live with their children. Uh, you have large fraction of uh, skipped generation households where all the people live with their grandchildren. How would actually the disease would spread in this particular context of intergenerational households may be something that we really need to be prepared for and that we really kind of understand very poorly at the moment. So I think there are particular challenges that will happen when this kind of spreads through countries in sub-Saharan Africa, in some Latin American countries as well, and further in Asia. Um, but we, at the moment, we have actually very little understanding of how that will play out. 
partly because we learn from the experiences of other countries and, you know, whatever we see, for example, the large differences of how this has played out in Italy versus China. It's already very, very different, very different case fatality rates, very, very different rates of transmission, you know, and, and this reflects these very underlying differences in, in each country. So we, we need a combination of understanding the local context at the same time that we can draw lessons from international experiences. So Mauricio, if we think about the wider economic and political shifts that might happen in global health and at the WHO due to the coronavirus, if, as we've discussed, the crisis sees the return of the public sector and nation state as the main drivers in global health, will we see a change of approach at the WHO? That's a really good question. I think one important aspect to understand is uh, that globalization and health are profoundly connected beyond the question of this pandemic. So we live in a world of free markets, open borders, um, and this is also the very reason why we see the dimension of the current epidemic, because of free movement between people, between uh, you know across countries of goods and so on. So I think it's important to understand that any change that happens in terms of the way we address pandemics will have to also respond to the way we think about globalization and the economy and, and, and our perception more broadly about globalization, you know, even public perception about the benefits of globalization has also changed over time. So what we may see is a combination of this increasing trend of questioning some principles of neoliberalism or globalization, if you like. Um, at the same time as, you know, making us aware through these pandemics that there is a role for organizations such as the WHO, but also for the role of the public sector. One of the interesting aspects of the um, European response, for example, is the way countries such as France or even the UK have reacted by activating mechanisms that provide, for example, benefits and social support, you know, economic and social support to people during times of crisis. Now, this is kind of unprecedented, especially for conservative governments to to take such response. Um, does this mean that basically we, as society, are thinking about the way you know we need to have governments that are able to respond to crisis? This may relate also to the to the very origins of the welfare state in you know post-war Europe, a critical moment in which we saw ourselves under the needs of, you know, public policy and the welfare state emerging. Maybe these crises are in some ways moments in which we understand the role of the public sector and the important role of these, these sectors. Now, whether that will play out in terms of the private sector, for example, NGOs as well, sort of changing the role, that's, I think, really difficult to predict. But I think you know, certainly I would expect this crisis to change at least public perception, but also in some ways, you know, the way we think about the welfare state, about the role of governments has been critical to these responses. And I think this is one of the lessons that might potentially emerge uh, from this particular crisis. Yeah, and just to echo and amplify what Mauricio is saying, I mean, I think it would be very hard, um, I would imagine, at least um, in European states, to kind of make the argument following COVID for continuing privatization of the National Health Service. I think, you know, the kind of cracks um, and fragmentation of health provision have just been incredibly underscored and highlighted by this outbreak. And I think the need for not only rapid response, but a kind of much stronger set of health system measures is going to come back um, on the table. I mean, the fact, just thinking, you know, um, that universal basic income is was something that was laughed out of the U.S. and now the government is sending checks <laughs> to working population. 
I mean, it's a really incredible moment where I think conversations are going to change. I mean, like Mauricio, we'll have to see how long lasting that is. But I think the openness to rethink some of those fundamental assumptions about how healthcare is financed, how, you know, what kinds of safety nets have to be in place in order to kind of prevent this kind of situation again is really going to be brought, I think, to center stage. A big thank you to Dr. Anne Kelly and Professor Mauricio Pabon. In our next episode, we will be talking about the role data can play in tackling pandemics. We'll explore how big data is being used for both public health and coronavirus research, as well as discuss what this might mean for the future of pandemic response. My name's James Bagley from the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Thank you for listening. And remember, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this. Here you'll find a full list of further reading materials. This podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepawoska, with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this.